Greetings, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to your favorite podcast, The Africanist. I am your host, Bamba, and today I have another special guest. Her name is Dr. Catherine Appert. Uh, Dr. Appert is an associate professor at Cornell University. Uh, she holds an MA and a PhD in ethnomusicology with a graduate certificate in women's studies from UCLA. Her research is on popular music in Senegal and the Gambia. It also centers on questions of globalization, migration and diaspora, the ethnographic studies of musical genre, popular music and gender, and the intersection of music and memory. Other research interests of Dr. Appert include feminist and urban ethnographies, global hip-hop culture, and African, Atlantic, and post-colonial studies. Her book, entitled In Hip-Hop Time, Music, Memory, and Social Change in Senegal, was published in December 2018 by Oxford University Press. Dr. Appert, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you for having me. All right, so we're going to jump right in to talk about your book. It's a fascinating book. It helped me a lot. Uh, when I was writing actually my dissertation. And uh, it also talks about a topic that I'm very passionate about, hip hop. I want to talk about what you call in your book, the origin myth. Senegalese people in general like to to pride themselves as one of the major, uh, as Senegal being one of the major centers of global hip hop. Um, they also often argue that Hip-hop traces its origins back to the Griot tradition of Senegal slash uh, West Africa. And although hip-hop scholars are unanimous that the genre was born in South Bronx in the 1970s, you also have this uh, Senegal version of the genesis of hip-hop, which ties the genre to African oral traditions. Why is that? Can you explain these two different narratives and how significant they are in the formation and development of Senegalese hip-hop? Yeah, so, you know, I think first I would say that even in terms of sort of U.S. scholarship on hip-hop, that the the Bronx sort of origin story doesn't in and of itself sort of preclude the African origin story, right? And so that actually there's quite a significant presence in scholarship from from U.S. Uh, scholars, from Black American scholars, in particular, writing about hip hop, that also make these sort of connections between um, griot practices as a sort of itself a kind of mythologized African thing that's not necessarily synonymous with how we might think of, of um, you know so-called griots in West Africa today. Um, connections between that and the sort of oral oral uh, practices of hip hop in particular, right? Um, which is where I have first encountered the idea myself in graduate school, the sort of connection between griots and hip hop was in, in literature on US hip hop, in fact, um, as sort of the African roots of, of African-American music more broadly, and then hip hop in particular. And so um, I think that's really important because what it does is shed a little bit of light, I think, on, on the ways in which particularly a certain generation of Senegalese artists who kind of plugged into or perpetuated the sort of griot story were themselves also in already a transatlantic dialogue with artists and activists and scholars across the Atlantic who themselves are making these kinds of connections in strategic ways that have to do with, as you, of course, know, like Afrocentrism and, and Pan-Africanism, et cetera. So, I think that the two stories have always already kind of been in conversation with each other. The same way that, you know, when when some Senegalese artists might talk about the sort of griot roots of hip hop, they don't do so in a way that erases the Bronx story either, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this kind of circulation, this multi-directional circulation of stories that overlap and are given different importance at different times. But yeah, I would say the Bronx, the Bronx narrative, I think it's uh, Murray Foreman who writes about how that narrative becomes a sort of like canon of hip hop in and of itself. Um, and you, you'll you notice if you read articles about hip hop anywhere in the world, um, they always kind of start with hip hop was born in the Bronx. It has these four elements, writing, rapping, right? Mm-hmm. Um, breaking, what did I forget? Writing, rapping, breaking. Like writing, rapping, uh, breakdancing, right? yeah, um, and DJing, DJing right? Uh-huh. 
and then of course knowledge right it's the fifth element so there's this Mm -hmm. sort of like litany um uh that gets like baked into how we think about hip-hop in a scholarly way but that's also important um has been important to practitioners around the world for for particular reasons that i talk about in the book um and then you know in senegal i think that when you have that those sort of early generations of of hip hoppers who themselves were i mean if you think about like positive black soul you know they talk about like reading shekhan tajop and re, and they themselves were very uh invested in these particular intellectual projects so it wasn't a kind of like fossil like oh griots and hip hop are the same right but i think there's something much more strategic and that that was not to say like hip hop is African, but that like, here's a way of sort of recognizing Africa in hip hop. And that's not a nuance that I understood when I first started asking questions about Senegalese hip hop at all, right? Um, that sort of nuance of the difference between saying like, Rios are doing hip hop and saying, here's this kind of resonance between these performance practices. And then here's also the significance of the Bronx and like, why we want to route that through the Bronx and then bring it back so that it can do something different for us socially than, than it does um, at when it's the version of, of like Rio performance or oral practices that, that we know in contemporary Senegal today. That was a circuitous answer. I hope that mm-hmm. answered your question. Mm-hmm. So between Dakar and the Bronx, that's several thousand miles easily. Yeah. How did hip hop get to Senegal? Could you tell us more about the trajectory yeah. of, of Senegalese hip hop? Sure, I mean, I think it got to Senegal like it got everywhere else in the world, right? Which is a sort of simultaneous, um, like increased globalization of the 1980s in particular, like they just accelerated, uh, wildly accelerated flows throughout the 20th century, right? Of people, of capital, of technology, of media, um, and the sort of cultural uh, dominance of the West and the United States uh, in particular, right, in sort of seeding cultural products out towards the rest of the world. And of course, there's this, uh, an irony in the fact that not just hip hop, but of course, prior to that jazz, for example, as these musics that are sort of iconically American, and yet are the musics of populations who, who within the United States are themselves oppressed and, and whose uh, cultural practices are not valued, right? So so that's, you know, the sort of one facet of how hip hop gets to Senegal. But then, of course, you also have, uh, you know, Senegalese folks themselves going to uh, Canada, to the United States, to Europe, and physically bringing back or sending back hip hop artifacts, right? Films, cassettes, mm. um, uh, movies like Wild Style or uh, Beat Street, right? So that, and I think that's really important, the role of film because what you have is not people being exposed necessarily to hip hop as music first and foremost, but also as visual culture, as embodied um, dance culture. Um, and I, I think, you know, I wasn't there, but from what people tell me that that's really what grabbed people's um, interest is just a sort of like whole packageness of hip hop um, and all of these various elements within it. And so you have in Senegal, again, as in, as in really most of Africa, and I'd say a lot of places in the world, uh, you know, where people start rapping by sort of imitating uh, the U.S. hip hop or in Senegal, in some cases, French hip hop that they were listening to, um, and then themselves rapping over the sort of B-sides of cassettes. And then finally, as with the sort of democratization of, of uh, sampling and producing technologies that happens in the early, like, late 80s, early 90s, right? Um, people starting to make, produce, you know, original beats uh, in ways that become just increasingly accessible into the 21st century. So now, I mean, it's really not difficult now for somebody to become a producer with very limited means, which wouldn't have been the case, you know, in 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So um, I'd say in, an, in a sort of consolidated way, that would, that's the sort of multiple trajectories of hip hop to Senegal. Mm-hmm. So if we try to locate the beginnings of uh, Senegalese hip hop. What would that be? Nineteen seventies, eighties. Well, you have. I mean, based on on oral histories, which are always, of course, partial, right, and representing the perspectives of the people with whom you're speaking. Um, you know, it, it sounds as though um, folks really started making original music in the eighties, right? 
and you have, you know, uh, often many accounts, myself included, tend to talk about like positive black pole and those groups. But of course, there's like Bakay Jum and people, you know, the earlier, like sort of original, mm-hmm. um, earliest, earliest hip hop recordings. And I'd say it's like really, yeah, I would say early 90s is when people really make, maybe late 80s, early 90s, when people are really making stuff that's like original music, you know, not covers, not mm-hmm. uh, besides of, of other songs. And again, that has to do with increased access to, to recording and things like that. Uh, you, you mentioned PBS, Positive Black Soul, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, one of the oldest hip hop group in Senegal, but probably uh, on the African continent. Could you tell us a little bit about that group? I know you interviewed DJ Audi, who was one of the, the founding members of PBS. Yeah, so I'll say that what I know about PBS is, again, you know, based on sort of these uh, compiled oral histories and that when I was doing research in Dakar, I worked much more closely with the sort of next wave of groups. Um, So I won't pretend to be an expert on PBS, but I can say, you know, that they were sort of that first wave of like kids who started in high school, you know, dancing, break dancing, and then trying their hand at rapping. Um, that's kind of sort of the standard story of how those earliest groups, right, got started. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, their big, their big break really came when they opened for MC Solar, of course, at the French Institute. Um, I can't remember if now it's the French Institute, and it used to be the CCF, or now it's the CCF, and it used to be the Anyway, in downtown Dakar, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, which then sort of launched for them as an international career. And, and I think it's important that that international aspect was so formative in launching, you know, Rap Galsen into something, um, into what it is as we know it today, right? Into sort of the possibility of the major scene that it is and the sort of possibility that's sometimes realized and sometimes only hoped for uh, of sort of international visibility for particular artists. And so, you know, PBS is, is so important not only as a sort of early group who sort of set the stage, but also for the things that they made possible for other young people to imagine could happen with hip hop, right? Um, and of course we know that for the vast majority of of rappers that you know PBS's reality is not their reality um but for some of them it is and um and so I think that you know they also they made hip-hop that was so palatable I think to a Senegalese audience including like older folks and girls and right um and I think that that was also something really important it's funny now all these years later to see how much Senegalese hip-hop is turns back to these kind of localized sounds and incorporating um you know singing and all this stuff that that for a long time the kind of hardcore artists really uh were not super excited about in the music of pbs for example and yet they really you know i think set the standard for what an an international um an international senegalese hip-hop sounds like Mm -hmm. um all those decades ago yeah so they they were basically the first Senegalese hip-hop group that made it internationally then probably after that Daraji uh, yeah. also uh, followed still talking about working with or interviewing Senegalese hip-hop artists in your book you talk about your encounter with Senkumba mm-hmm. and uh, especially your encounter with Burba Jalof, uh, who was one of also the founding members of San Kumpa. And it seems like he also played, or he was an important element in your research. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, Burba passed away on February 1st, 2010. And this past Monday, actually, February 1st, uh, the Senegalese hip hop community uh, celebrated his life and artistic achievements. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Can you tell us more about Burba and working with uh, Senkumpa? Yeah, of course. So it was really a chance connection. Um, a woman named Esther Baker, now Esther Baker Tarpaga, who was at the time or had been a graduate student at UCLA and had done her master's research in Senegal, um, knew Burba and, and uh, gave me his phone number. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to Senegal to do uh, some sort of pilot work in, in 2008. And I remember I sent him this text message and it was so long because at the time I didn't speak any Wolof and I had a really hard time understanding French on the phone. Um, and so I sent this text message that was like, hello, my name is Catherine. Esther gave me your number. I'm doing, like, it was, must've been 500 words long. And he just <laughs> texted back, great, call me. You know, oh. <laughs> like it was like two words, you know, and uh, and so I uh, met him and his, his manager, Laminda, who was a close friend of mine um, at Just For You in across from the university in Dakar. You know, that was an easy place for, I think, foreigners to find. They didn't have me come to Medina that first time. Um, and and we met and he was just such a, a generous person. And you know, sometimes you meet somebody and you just, you just get along so well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like you've been friends with that person forever. Yeah. Like, Wilbur and I, we just really got along really well, you know. And so I spent that summer just basically tagging along everywhere. Like, we got stranded in, in Kaulak at a concert. I didn't know where Kaulak was, so I didn't bring anything with me. And then it rained and we were there for like two nights and I didn't have like <laughs> clean clothes or contacts or anything with me. Mm-hmm. And it was just me and all these dudes and like, um, and you know, he, he was very, you know, protective and, um, and I, you know, in retrospect, it was so lucky for me, mm-hmm. not only to have had that chance to meet him, uh, because as anyone who knew him would tell you, he was such a, a special person. But also as a researcher, just so lucky to have people, somebody, you know, not only Borba, but his brother and manager and friends just kind of welcome you for no reason, you know, other than, you know, you're there and they're like, okay, we'll help you, you know. And so if it, if it weren't for him, um, you know, the book would not exist. The project would not exist. My PhD would not exist, you know. And so I really, I owe a lot to him and, and his help. Um and you know his his death was was devastating for everybody, of course, who knew him, for his family, for the hip hop mm-hmm, community. Mm-hmm. And when I I returned to Senegal for sort of the long haul of research for my PhD, it actually coincided exactly with the year anniversary of his passing, um, and that was very challenging. Like I actually didn't really want to continue the project. I didn't. I just it um, it was a very it was a time of a lot of, of grief and I don't mean to claim other people's grief as my own, but simply to say that for myself, that was the mm-hmm. sort of process of beginning restarting this project in a moment of intense grief and feeling kind of lost um, uh, without his guidance. And I shouldn't have felt that way because folks, his, his brother books, his manager, Lamin, you know, everybody in that sort of scene just kind of took me right back in, you know, Simon, um, the guys from Sankim Underground, just sort of that whole um, uh, Jola for Life group, you know. Um, and again, I, I, it, I was just so lucky and so privileged to just be able to show up somewhere and be like, hi, can I do research? And people are like, sure, come everywhere with us, you know. Um, and, uh, and the timing of it was just right, you know, a year later, not even like the Yanamar started and there was such an influx of researchers that I don't think had I showed up a year later or two years later, I would have found the same kind of welcome or the same kind of space. Um, and so, yeah, then for the duration of the project, you know, I, I worked with different artists at different in sort of different capacities and, but I kind of always stayed centered in that sort of Medina um, scene and, and, and a lot with Senkumpa, who was sort of the primary group that I, that I worked with. And I will say that in particular, I owe a lot to Lamin Dao, the former manager of, of Kumpa Sen, who, um, you know, just kind of continued that work of just bringing me everywhere and helping me, you know, connect with people. And uh, I'm really grateful to him for that as well. That was a, a, a very generous act on his part and one that, that I owe him a lot for. Thank you.
Yeah. It's been a long time. One shot. One shot. One shot. Benapabo <laughs> YouTube or Spotify or any other streaming platform. So could you tell us more about your experience navigating Dakar, Senegal, navigating the hip hop movement as a foreigner, but also as a woman, considering, of course, that this milieu is male dominated and, you know, it, it might be challenging for women in general to navigate Uh, that environment how how was it for you you know i think it's the uniquely like american hubris to just show up somewhere and expect to like be able to move around easily and freely and um so i'll say that it was very difficult for me at first um but also that i think that's probably a good experience for like young american people to have especially young white american people to have to go somewhere and Uh, you know, stick out like a sore thumb racially and, you know, uh, understand that not everybody all over the world speaks English. Um, but it was definitely very challenging, um, largely because, you know, I was at the time, you know, young in my mid-20s. Um, and, uh, you know, didn't have a, the kind of, I think, like cultural Uh, understanding that would have helped me sometimes understand that like things that I experienced as like harassment or being hit on were actually sometimes just people being nice or that also like being hit on isn't always a big deal you know but so sometimes there was a lot of like moments of tension particularly early on um, that grew out of a kind of like cultural ignorance on my part Um, and also just different different norms for how you know people interact and move through different spaces 
Um, and again, I'll say that being sort of attached to one group really helped in that in that respect. I mean, people certainly made assumptions sometimes about my relationships with with uh, different uh, guys in the sort of Senpupa crew. Um, but it also, you know, provided some degree of sort of um, protection as a, you know, like young single woman um, wandering around. I think also there's like a privilege to being, um, you know, a Westerner and a white person who's granted access in a way um, that local folks are not always. And also, you know, especially as a woman, I had a kind of mobility that sometimes was the reason people, you know, made certain assumptions about me probably, but also allowed me to do this research in ways that would not have always been available um, to my female peers locally, for example, whose parents probably wouldn't have been wild about them staying out till six in the morning at, at you know, hip hop concerts with all these guys. So I'm very, in retrospect, both, um, you know, very aware of the kind of privilege of being able to do that research at all. And also, I think I have a much larger grain of salt for some of the things that I experienced as very difficult in terms of my gender and racial identities at the time. Um, yeah, but it was challenging. You know, I, I think that um, what was helpful was this, the more time I spent in Senegal around Senegalese folks, sort of learning how to, and also learning to communicate better with people. And you know, learning how to to uh, just shrug things off a little bit more. I think in Senegalese culture, there's a lot of playfulness in the interactions between people, especially young people in different contexts. And once you can kind of tap into that and realize everything's not such a big deal all the time, mm -hmm. um, you can, you know, forge better relationships with people. Yeah, but there were definitely, you know, moments that I found very challenging but also I think you know the flip side of that is like the privilege to have been able to go do this work um, and that was also kind of directly related to being young and a girl and white and foreign and so I think those two things are hard to um, to break apart from each other. In your book uh, especially on chapter two of the book right uh, you talk about different kinds of hip hop productions in Senegal. So basically when you observe uh, Senegalese hip hop or rap galsen as we commonly call it in Senegal, there is a dichotomy, a kind of conflict that opposes the underground versus uh, the commercial or conscious rap versus commercial rap. Rappers from middle-class neighborhoods versus rappers from the quartier populaire or the suburb, uh, which suburb here is different from the concept of suburb in the United States, where you have middle class and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Suburbs in Senegal uh, are, are different. So how does the issue of class uh, permeate Senegalese hip hop? And how does these dichotomies uh, influence content and messaging in Senegalese hip hop? Yeah, well, I think it's important that to answer that question, we talk about specific periods because um, it's something that's changed a lot over time, right? But I'd say in the beginning, if we think of the first couple waves of Senegalese hip hop, you have, you know, these these early groups who we've talked about a bit already, you know, the Positive Black Souls, the Daraji, who we think of as being, you know, um, from at least a relatively more privileged background, folks you know, who spoke French, may have traveled abroad, had access to some of the, you know, um, uh, scholarly and intellectual and traditions and also sort of popular culture from outside of Senegal that we spoke about earlier. Um, and then, you know, you have actually beginning at the same time, but um, becoming, uh, recording things much later because of a, a lack of means, right? The sort of hardcore underground uh, wave of rap gulfs and you know, groups like uh, uh, Rapajo. Rapajo. Yeah. Um, BMG, BMG 44. Yeah, exactly. BMG 44, you know, these early groups. And so who, you know, kind of really uh, highlighted the consonance between the sort of experiences, as you said, of growing up in the working class neighborhoods, whether in the sort of inner, inner part of the city or on its outskirts, um, 
or, you know, and the sort of resonance between that and what they were seeing as a sort of image of like the ghetto and the inner city in, in the hip hop coming out of the United States at the time. And, and of course, you know, how was that, that dichotomy that they were creating expressed? Well, they expressed it by, you know, uh, not rapping in French in particular, right? But by rapping in Wolof, by using language that uh, was really not acceptable, right? In the public sphere, um, whether it was, you know, words that were not acceptable because they were curse words or whether it was a sort of directness of speech that was unacceptable for young people um, to be using vis-a-vis their elders, including politicians and, and leaders and, and whatnot. Um, and they expressed it in a kind of hardcore musical aesthetic that really um, rejected the incorporation of, you know, local instruments, African instruments of singing, of the sort of Jamaican style toasting um, to, you know, adopt this really kind of hardcore sound. So the hardcore was a multifaceted sort of uh, performance style that encompassed linguistics, uh, linguistic practices, both uh, in terms of delivery and in terms of content and in terms of language use, uh, you know, Wolof versus French, for example. Um, but then also the way the music itself sounded, right? Um, and so that, you know, is the group that I tend to kind of focus on more in the book. And the reason that I, I finally just stopped the book at 2011 or 12 is because even by the time I was finishing writing that sort of dichotomy in which people are like, well, here's commercial hip hop and commercial referred to not only something's commercial viability, but also its um, lyrics as being, you know, ostensibly not socially conscious and its musical sounds as being danceable or pretty or something that like mm-hmm. maybe your mom wouldn't mm-hmm. mind hearing on TV, right? Mm-hmm. Something that's played on TV. Um, and the dichotomy between that and stuff that was hard and sounded hard and maybe social interventions was really eroding as people started to say like, well, music can sound good and also say something. And of course, it's not like Positive Black Soul's music or Darji's music didn't say anything or didn't make social commentary like that in and of itself was, was a, a kind of uh, strategic representation on the part of the old school hardcore rappers. Um, And, you know, but I'll say that, you know, into the, particularly around the turn, you know, 2010, 2011, 12, and then much more after that, you see people who you would have previously thought of as like underground or hardcore rappers really tapping into the potential of like local instruments and even like singable hooks and things like that um, to still carry these socially conscious lyrics, but in ways that might gain them some commercial viability because frankly when you're when you're talking about poverty or the need to you know support a family or underemployment then I think that complicates the idea of what socially conscious lyrics are um right is it always like the government is bad or this is bad or is it also like socially conscious music is music maybe that puts food on the table for your family right and Mm -hmm. so people started to as I think there's a desire for people to be able to benefit financially from their music, they started to really reconsider what it meant for music to be commercial. Um, And so, and now it's like a whole different game in Senegal. I mean, you don't, I don't know who's underground and who's commercial. I don't think, I really don't think the binary, uh, it it functions anymore in that way. Um, I think you have more of a generational divide between some uh, older rappers who kind of want to hang on to a certain way of doing things. But then you have people like Katie of Rapajo, who's like, yeah, we should be localizing our hip hop, you know, and, and, you know, 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago, but 25 years ago, right, he would have been the person who was like, no, absolutely not. And mm-hmm. so there's this about face as, as folks kind of grow up and realize, right, the sort of realities, not, not only in terms of economic viability but also like artistically the difference between sort of reproducing a style of hip-hop that comes out of and resonates with uh, U.S. realities and something that speaks to Senegalese realities and it used to be that the idea was okay to speak to our reality it has to be this hardcore thing and and now I think there's been a real shift uh, shift away from that kind of dichotomizing of style and of content uh, in rap golf then. So if you <clears throat> if you compare Rap Galsen 
or Senegalese hip hop in 2008 when you started your hmm. field work. Uh, so 2008, 9, 10, 11 to current Galsen hip hop. What major differences do you see? Oh, it's changed so much. I mean, I think first of all, you've just seen such an explosion of uh, like the quality in terms of like video production and production. People just have, again, much more access uh, to the materials that are not as expensive as they used to be to produce really uh, high quality um, hip hop recordings and videos. When I was there in 2011, one of the reasons people liked to have me around was that I had a camera and I would film whatever they wanted. You know, now I don't think a researcher showing up with a camera would make anybody happy excited at all because people have access to such things in ways that they didn't previously i mean i actually accidentally ended up like shooting music videos for people because <laughs> they'd say can you come to our, our shooting and take pictures while we're doing it and then i'd get there and they'd be like just kidding you're the second cameraman i'm like i'm not i don't i'm not a videographer i don't do this you know and so there's the sort of accidental falling into that role um so that's one thing that i think has changed is just the sort of uh kind of technical quality um, of the recordings and videos, but also musically things have changed um, immensely, it, both in terms of people's willingness to uh, incorporate, again, local, not only local instruments, but even local rhythms um, that they used to really kind of shy away from. So you think about someone like Fata, who, you know, has been doing Uh, hip hop that was mixed with Mbala and stuff like that for years. And the hardcore used to be like, oh, fuck yeah, that, yeah. you know? He, he you got know? a lot of pushback from that. Yeah, people were just <laughs> hating on them really hard. And now every other rapper is doing this kind of like rap Mbala or trap Mbala or right, Afro trap or whatever. And it's, um, and so that I think is really uh a huge change and actually um, I have an article that I'm just finishing up now that speaks about this kind of shift the post book shift right of um this this opening to um to indigenous rhythms that didn't even even when you know in 2012 or 2013 when you had kind of underground rappers who might like throw a kora or a, a tama or something in their music but they always still had this kind of boom bop Uh, style of hip hop and that has changed the sort of adherence to always like that boom bop sound that like makes it real hip hop um, is not something that I see even people who you might have thought of before as underground artists really caring about anymore um, and that's a huge change that's a huge change and I think part of what's facilitated it actually is the ways in which um, trap rhythms kind of leave that space for the incorporation of Malach rhythms but then it's still hip hop because it's trap and trap is hip hop, right? So I think the stuff that's coming out of Senegal right now is really, really interesting. It's local, but it's so international in its sound. And then a another difference is that you also have people kind of playing around with like Afro beats and hip hop, which I have to think 10 years ago would have been like uh, also not very well Yeah, sacrilege, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And so there's just a, I think that that's a big difference too. And then a final difference that I've seen over the last several years is a move towards um, hip hop that can be performed with live instrumentation. Mm -hmm. I don't remember back in like 2010, 2011. I don't, I'm sure that somebody was doing it other than like Awadi, but I don't, I don't remember people that being like a thing that people were doing a lot. And now you have a lot of artists who are, Uh, composing music in ways that are sort of deliberately open towards being able to play it on on um, live instruments or you even have someone like Simone um, of Jola for Life, Simone Bispe Clan who, who does a, a tour where it's just him rapping over a kind of like small acoustic ensemble of indigenous instruments um, and that's a, that I think is also quite a big change from, from what he or others in his circle would have been doing 10 years ago so. mm -hmm. Yeah Apart from uh, San Kumpa, who's your uh, favorite rapper or favorite? No, group? I can't answer that question. Why not? I'm sure you <laughs> have. Okay, give me, give me your top, give me your top three or top five if you want. Oh, uh, 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I could get in trouble. Um, <laughs> you, you won't. You won't. They will understand. I know you love every hip hop group in Senegal, but I'm sure you have a top three. I like Gaston's music a lot, especially his Tutti Wah Joe Blueberry album. Gaston? Um, well, that's that's still yeah. Senkumpa. No, kind he of, wasn't kind still Senkumpa at that When I was working with Senkumpa, <laughs> Gaston was, had been out of that group for a long time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, but he comes him. from the tradition. Okay, so, well, that's true. So we'll, 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 we are going to rule him out, okay? So okay. give me, yeah, okay. I don't know. I'm actually scared to answer this question because that could get me in trouble. I mean, I think everybody's doing really great music. Um, okay. Recently, okay, I'll tell you, instead of saying who my favorite is, I'll tell you some things I've listened to recently that I enjoy. Okay, that that, that works too. Um, I like um, uh, PPS, uh-huh. uh, Papasa, you know. Papasa, uh, the yeah, writer? His, yeah, his last uh, couple albums have been really, uh, really yeah. good. Yeah, I he's, really enjoyed he's listening lyrically to lyrically dense. Yeah. Um, mm, who else? Uh, I really enjoy... Um, uh some of uh omg's stuff that she's done mm-hmm. i think that the female rap game in senegal is really changing a lot yeah um and i i enjoy seeing that omg uh-huh. uh, yeah um ah uh, but i don't know i really they don't necessarily do like hip-hop hip-hop but sharifu and job sabrain i really like the stuff that they're doing mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I like um, the cover of uh, oh, Davido. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's really that... fun. Um, who else? I've been really into not a rapper, but um, a lot of the stuff produced by Paso Beats. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his stuff is great. He's done some stuff for Nix. Um, that's really good. Nix, of course, is doing music that's really interesting. You know, again, like I said, I'm hesitant to to list people because I think so many people are doing really good stuff. And if I had to go back to like my favorite stuff, I used to love listening to Sankiem Underground. Oh, um, Sankiem Underground. Yeah, that, that, they they are to this day one of my favorite groups. Yeah, just Dilly I just love, Yeah, Dilly, Dilly, you know, he's a friend too, and also I just. Uh, I always just really enjoyed enjoyed seeing them perform and enjoyed their music a lot. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, but I like, you know, I don't, there's nothing in there that I, I'm, I'm in my head. I'm saying, Banyu Mosidara. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like trying to translate that. Like, it's all nice, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And also in your book, in chapter five, especially, you talk about gender mm-hmm. and, and, and hip hop in Senegal. So could you elaborate more on that? What is the role of gender? Are female hip hoppers uh, or hip hop artists finding their their way in Senegalese hip hop? You know, I think yes, they are, but they also still face in many ways similar obstacles that women did 10 years ago and 20 years ago because, you know, Senegalese culture has not changed that much and the world beyond Senegal has not changed that much, right? And so, um. You know, I think that to this day, when you see women who are able to have long careers in hip hop, it often is dependent on, you know, for example, being married to somebody who's in the hip hop scene or like having a kind of um, home arrangement that allows for you to continue doing hip hop. But in general, I still I think it remains very challenging for young women to um 
to do hip hop and also to sort of follow the uh, sort of milestones that are set out for them um, in life, right, at the same time. And so um, once somebody, you know, I think that like young women already is harder for them. This was true 10 years ago, and I don't think it's changed very much. It's harder for them to do hip hop because there's a concern about their sort of movement in the world, right? Um, their safety, but safety also, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, safety, of course, um, and also reputation. Um, and then, you know, I think that there, you know, for men and women, marriage is a big social uh, goal, one that's kind of a, a rite of passage into social adulthood. And women, you know, continue to marry much younger than men, although certainly not as young as they used to. And again, that's a sort of trend, I think, in a lot of places in the world, in, including the United States. Um, uh, and once they're married, it's not really realistic to be a rapper, unless, as I said, you're married, maybe married to another rapper or producer or somebody in the industry who can sort of carve out that, allow you to continue to carve out that space. And so I think that those challenges remain. Um, one of the things I talked about in the book was, you know, how women also, because of those factors, don't have these sort of really long uh, tenures in in hip hop that allows them always to reach the same level as male rappers. And I think now you see more women who have managed to stay in longer and you see the sort of um, resultant, um, you know, level that they achieve as, as artists changing. Um, but I think that that's, that's a really, a very real challenge. And I think too, you know, without wanting to get on the like hip hop is so misogynistic bandwagon because I think it's more complicated than that but also you know misogyny has been a sort of is a part of and a facet of hip hop as a genre and I think that in some ways women in Senegal have the advantage in that I don't think that this hip hop that Senegalese men make is as overtly uh, misogynistic perhaps as some of the stuff in the United States but there are other ways um, in which women's participation is is sort of consistently constrained. When you talk about hip hop, whether in Senegal or in South Africa or the United States, there is always this element of resistance. Hip hop as a genre contributes to social change. In your experience working with Senegalese hip-hop artists and consuming Senegalese hip-hop, how has the genre contributed in social change in Senegal? Or what has also been some of the challenges that hip-hop artists uh, face or backlash they've faced uh, coming from the government, the politician, as they are wanting to foster social change in the country? You know, um one thing I push back against a little bit in the book is the sort of emphasis on on resistance in hip hop, in scholarship on hip hop, not because resistance isn't or hasn't often been an important facet of hip hop cultures in various places throughout the world, but because sometimes um, a sort of understanding of resistance uh, as so integral to hip hop can elide the other ways in which hip-hop is important to people that aren't necessarily uh, obviously resistant, right? And I think that actually in the gender chapter of the book, I hate to call it the gender chapter because I'd like to think that the book thinks through gender in all the chapters, but in the chapter of the book that really focuses on women artists, um, you know, one of the critiques that I make there, I try to make is to say, you know, there's this idea, for example, when people are uh, rejecting the idea that hip hop is tied to griots, and one of the things that they reject is this uh, this linking of of hip hop to tasu. But there's a particular kind of liberal idea of resistance or of social consciousness that erases women's performance practices and or like negotiations of domestic space as not being in and of themselves related to social change or consciousness, right? And so. Um, I think that resistance sometimes is actually can be part of the sort of masculinist um, reworking of, of hip hop in, in various contexts. But as you say, it of course also is a part of hip hop. And so um, I'll say, in, you know, in Senegal, 
um, you know, you know even better than I do, right, with your work on Yana Amar, um, the importance that hip hop has had at various moments in political resistance, whether that has been the various presidential elections in which rappers, you know, mobilized young people to vote, in which they protested corruption, um, protested potential. Um, and ultimately unrealized changes to the constitution, for example, that would have um, resulted in the, you know, sort of dictator-esque uh, governmental structure. And so, you know, so, so I don't mean to say that hip hop has not been an important part of resistance in Senegal, but one of the things that I um, try to problematize in the book or to think through is how we can think about social change in ways that encompass, but also exceed political, um, sort of overt political demonstrations. And I think that that's important to do because of uh, the ways in which it makes space then for like, um, for example, maybe some female performance practices or female participation that are that are not always a sort of overt thing we recognize as resistance and yet are in their own way uh, sort of resistant negotiations of social norms and restrictions on women's movement and uh, audibility in particular spaces. So um, I think one thing that's really interesting in Senegalese hip hop is that as much as you've had many artists, uh, many rappers involved in political movements, there's also a way of thinking about social change, you know, along the lines that we talked about earlier, which is a sort of immediate material negotiation of like what it means to be um, a young person or a young man in urban Africa at the turn of the century, Faced now with the sort of consequences of decades of uh, or decades of consequences of structural adjustment programs, et cetera, that really devastated local economies, and what that's meant for the the possibilities and the impossibilities for young people. And so, like, how can we think about resistance and social change in ways that include the very important political movements, like the ones that you write about in you know throughout the African continent? but also include the sort of daily acts of negotiation and survival um, that for a lot of rappers um, are the real kind of social change that they're hoping hip hop will, will achieve for them. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, before I part ways with my guests, I have uh, two or maybe three fun questions for them. Number okay. one being, uh, what are uh, your top three uh, dishes? In Senegal or in general? In general. Oh, um, hmm. I eat a lot, so it's hard for me to come up with just three dishes. But okay, let me think. Um, I love any kind of pasta. I'm not Italian, but I grew up in New Jersey. So basically, if you put pasta in front of me, <laughs> I'll okay. be a happy person. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm going to say I love pizza, but that's going to make me sound like, okay. Yeah, I also love pizza, which is also very New Jersey of me. But I don't love Senegalese <laughs> pizza, if I'm being honest. Why? Well, the cheese well, is very pungent. They don't put mozzarella. Right. They put uh, usually... Gruyere. Gruyere or... Yeah. No, the other one. Uh, what is it Emmental. Amantal. Yeah. Which I love. That's my favorite cheese. Oh, really? To me, yeah. Mozzarella. I don't understand mozzarella, <laughs> to be honest. And the no, I love Senegalese pizza or Senegalese style pizza. So we're opposite on that. Well, one, I, guess. I think we'll have to agree to disagree. I like <laughs> um, New Jersey or New York style pizza. <laughs> and having gone to graduate school in California, that was very, I finally stopped eating pizza and I only would eat it when I came home for break because I was just like this thing in California that they call pizza is not. Um, <laughs> I, so think you, you, I think you're just like a, a Northeast, Northeastern yeah. pizza purist, you <laughs> That's know? That's true. So. That's true. <laughs> yeah okay then, so okay. pasta pizza i guess i'm a real carb carbophile um i love i love chocolate cake that's not a dish but i, I can yeah yeah is that i'm gonna that one that one doesn't count okay fine i'll give you one more yeah um okay i'll give you a senegalese dish i really love mafe oh mafe that's that's a classic yeah. i haven't 
met many Americans who don't love mafia. They all love mafia, but you have to be careful because sometimes people will say they're making mafia, but what they're actually making is sulo humbala, and that's not mafia. Yeah, that's when you put the ganja. Yeah, exactly. And so Mm -hmm. that can be very depressing when somebody's like, oh, we're having mafe. Yes, mafe. I lucked out because you're right. Americans love mafe. It's like the safe, you know, it's just like delicious. And then you sit down and you're like, oh. Yeah. So I don't know if you, uh, what was your experience with Sufukanja? But also they, they, they don't love Sufukanja, probably because of the, the, you know, gooeyness of the gumbo. Yeah, I can't mess the, with it if I'm being honest. And the 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 palm oil. It's I can't mess with it. It's the one dish. I'm a very polite person. Like I was raised to always eat what somebody offers you. But supakanja <laughs> is the one thing. Like if I go somewhere and they're having it, I'm like just rice and like a tiny bit of sauce, and then I'll be like, oh, I'm full. Thank you. That was <laughs> I ate a late breakfast. You know, <laughs> it's the one thing that I just I can't mess with it. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's one of my favorite things. Uh, of course. In Senegal, I mean, it's, wow, you you can't beat supakanja, to be honest. So. That's yeah, my it, friends. Actually, Senkumbu's family, like sometimes I'll go there and they'll say, oh, we're having mafe. But they're like, oh, it's mafe bambara. But like, mafe bambara is surahama. <laughs> like, and so now I know not to trust them when they say mafe. I'm like, yeah, but you're bambara. That's not going to be mafe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now top three places that you haven't been to and would love to uh, visit someday. I would really love to go to East Africa, either like Kenya or Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really like to go to Iceland. Mm-hmm. And uh, where else would I really like to go? I actually have not been. I'm so embarrassed to say this. I haven't been to uh, Casamance mm-hmm. ever. The Casamance, and I would like to go there. When uh, I was in uh, southern Senegal. Yeah, in southern, southern Senegal. Senegal. Yeah. yeah, when I was on my Fulbright in graduate school, we were not allowed to go. And mm-hmm. then since then, I've always just been too busy. So I've never gone. Um, mm-hmm. but, so that seems like something that I should be able to, you know, address pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. You see, every guest that I've uh, uh, invited on the show and who is or, or connected to Senegal in some aspect mentions Casabans. Really? As one, yeah, as one of their... Uh, as one of you know top places they want to go to that's interesting so yeah 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 i, I myself like i little... myself haven't been there you haven't no that makes no. me feel better yeah i feel like it's a little shocking that i've never gone but i mean i've been to the gambia <laughs> but um like it wouldn't be that hard to just keep going yeah <laughs> but yeah yeah and then final question top three novels that you top three novels yeah that you've read uh, um Hmm. Well, I actually just read a fairly new novel that I really enjoyed called um, Behold the Dreamers um, by Mbolo Bue, which was really um, excellent. And mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like this is a little cliche, but I really loved Half a Yellow Sun. Um, what's the what's the title half a yellow sun by chimamanda adichie that was oh, okay chimamanda yeah uh-huh. um they made it into a movie but i didn't see the movie because when i really like a novel i don't like to see the film adaption in case it ruins it so <laughs> but i hear that it was quite good mm-hmm. so um who knows and let's see a third novel hmm. oh i don't know this is very hard, Bamba. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, I, I, I feel so the many. same way. I, yeah. I cannot tell you last time I read a, a, a new novel, actually. Usually I just go back to the ones that I like yeah. and start reading them again. Recently uh, I've been reading like some that. new ones. But um, yeah, I really but... like Paradise by Toni Morrison. Okay. Yeah, it has a kind of... Uh, interesting opening that i i enjoy returning to when i read it so awesome and back to the trouble question top three hip-hop groups in senegal no i can't top do three. it i can't <laughs> I, I actually i have to plead the fifth okay that's fine <laughs> that's fine uh we'll, we'll, we'll let that one go well uh catherine 
thank you very much uh, for uh, being on the show. We really enjoy talking with you and uh, I am looking forward to actually having you back to talk about uh, the other work that you're doing. Uh, you've recently published a couple of articles and you're working on another one that's almost there. So I would love to have you again uh, on the Africanist and talk more about your research. This is fun. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So okay. thank you. Thank you very much. And okay. thank you to our listeners. Uh, uh, this was Dr. Catherine Appert on The Africanist. And uh, thank you for tuning in. As usual, uh, I will talk to you guys soon uh, with another special guest on The Africanist. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy. Africa,